Our gospel reading this morning is Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And this is a, a familiar story where we see Jesus... Uh, doing what God has done in the past, providing food for his people in the wilderness. Uh, Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word that you've given to us. And Lord, we do ask that as we hear your word read and proclaimed this morning, uh, that, uh, that you would give us ears to hear. You give us minds to understand. You give us hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives. That, Lord, as we go from here, our lives would be changed and our lives would tell your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Turning then to our New Testament reading, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. Paul telling some of his own story to the church in Galatia and says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb 
called me by his grace. No, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our sermon text this morning is uh, in Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 through 28. And we are... At a part of this story, we have been, we started Genesis 1, we've been going straight through, and we are at a part of this story uh, where much of kind of the climax of the story has already happened. And so uh, we have seen Joseph, whose brothers had wronged him uh, many, many years earlier. We have seen uh, him test their character to see who they are, to see if they are still the same people they were. We see that they have changed. Um, And we also see what we looked at last week, this reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And this was kind of that moment that we'd been working up to for quite a while to see how's that going to go? Are they actually going to be um, reconciled or not? And uh, so we saw that. So then going forward from here, the story's not over. There's still more to go, even though it seems like a lot of the, um, the big events have, uh, have already happened. Um, but this is, you've seen this in movies. You have the big battle at the end, and then you're like, okay, so now it's over, right? Well, no, now they, now they go back, and you see how things uh, are different at the end of the story than maybe they were at the beginning. You see how it's different after all of that than it was uh, even just before. And this is where we find uh, the story this morning. We're looking at Genesis 45, 16 to 28. And we see after this big moment of lots of weeping and uh, making, as Joseph made himself known to his brothers, there's still stuff to do. So what are they going to do next? And um, so this is where we pick up the story. Uh, this is Genesis 45, 16 to 28. It says, When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings. 
because the best of all Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothing. And this is what he sent to his father. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. There you go. Go and do likewise. That's <laughs> no, this is not um, how this works. And this is when we are... When we're reading in the Old Testament, we are reading at multiple levels. I hope you're doing this, <laughs> where you are reading what it says and learning about how things were in the past. What was it that God was doing there? What happened with the people um, long ago? That you're reading it in that way, but that you're also reading it looking forward in other ways. Because if all we're doing is looking at uh, Joseph and his brothers and Pharaoh and that's it, then we look at this story and go, okay, so they're reconciled now, so it's time to move to Egypt, and so they do, and this is how they do it. And now we know. But there's a lot more going on. First of all, there's the uh, plot of the whole story so far, which if you know the whole story, you know that it's uh, Jacob's like, great-grandpa or something that God had said it's your family through whom the whole earth is going to be blessed, but also I'm going to give you this land. And this land wasn't Egypt. It was Canaan. And now that family is moving away from Canaan and going to Egypt. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yes. <laughs> it is actually something that God had said was going to happen. Uh, the sin of the Amorites had not reached, yet reached its full. There were people living in Canaan, and God was working with them too. And he was being very patient with them. And so while God did say that he was going to give this land to Abraham, it didn't come real fast. It was going to be a long time later that they were actually going to get that land, and that was uh, after they were going to go to Egypt. And so at this point, um, the going to Egypt is actually presented as a very good thing. Uh, this is a, uh, a life-saving thing, and not just for you know, any individuals. This is life-saving for that whole family, the family who is going to grow and go back to that land uh, someday, many years later. But in the meantime, this is what's going to be uh, what supports them. And uh, so that's good. There's also this involvement of Pharaoh, because this isn't just Joseph. So far, Joseph's been working with his brothers, and he's been the one calling the shots. Now we get uh, Pharaoh involved, and Pharaoh finds out about this whole thing. And in verse 17, he tells Joseph, hey, tell your brothers, do this. 
tells them all the stuff to do. Get your stuff. Come to Egypt. We're going to give you the good part of the land that you can live in. Uh, Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. What Pharaoh's saying. Remember, if you're following the story along, when they first came to Egypt, they came just asking for a little bit of food. And then they were immediately terrified because they were greeted with, what if you're spies? <laughs> and, but now they've come just asking for some food to maybe make it through. And they're not just given a little bit of food, but Pharaoh himself gets involved and is like, hey, I've got an idea. Move here. Here's the good land. You can live here and settle and thrive. Even at a time where uh, you couldn't, come up with any food on your own. Never mind about your belongings. Leave all that stuff if you need to. I'm going to take care of you here. So, um, and then we get the part about the brothers. That Joseph, as he gives them those commands, and as he sends them on his way, and he says, don't quarrel on the way ideas why they might quarrel on the way, why he might have to tell them that? They had just been brought face to face with the wrong they'd done to their brother all those years ago. And yes, he has forgiven them. Yes, they have been reconciled. But then they go away from there, and there's got to be some kind of, you know, if you hadn't said we should kill him, or if you hadn't been the one to sell him in slavery in Egypt, you know, it's a bit... (laughs) We start all the blaming and who's really the most at fault and all that kind of stuff. And Joseph's like, no, we're done with all that. And so as you go, no quarreling. The other issue is they have to tell their dad, right? (laughs) Yeah, let's get that story straight before we get home. (laughs) Because as far as he knows, Joseph died years ago and the brothers, we don't know what happened. And now they got to come back and come clean. Good news, bad news, Dad. Um, so turns out Joseph's still alive. That's good. Um, how is he still? Well, yeah, that, that's going to take a bit of explaining. See, uh, Judah had this idea. Um, <laughs> so they got to come clean. This may also raise some tension. There may be some quarreling on the way. But Joseph's like, no. This, that is over. Uh, this is all good news, and that is what you're going home with. And so they go and they tell uh, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, and he doesn't believe them. His first response is, nope. Joseph's still alive. In fact, he's not only alive, he's ruler over all Egypt. No. <laughs> does not believe them until he sees what they have brought, the gifts that they've been given by Joseph. As we look at it this way, we see there's more depth to the story, but there's so much more when we start looking forward and saying, how does this story, even this story of just them moving to Egypt, help to tell the story of Jesus? Because everything tells the story of Jesus, but especially in the Old Testament, the whole thing is pointing to Jesus. This is what Jesus says, even after he's raised from the dead and he's walking on the road uh, with the guys going to Emmaus. Remember this? 
they're on the way and they're like, yeah, we thought he was going to be the one, but then he died. And now people are saying he's raised to life, but I don't, we don't know. And he says, how foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. And then he goes back and it says that he teaches them how everything in uh, the law and the prophets and the, and the writings, how all of it, the whole of the Old Testament had been pointing to Jesus. Wouldn't you love to have heard that conversation? But this is what Jesus said earlier in his ministry as well when he said that uh, I don't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I come to fulfill them. That everything has been pointing to Jesus uh, somehow. Now we're going to look at this in a way and you're going to be tempted to hear this like it's an allegory, like everything is pointing to this and so you just keep on looking at how everything points to something. If you do that, you're going to push it too far. This is not an allegory. This is something that happened in the Old Testament and it does point us to it, but it points us forward to Jesus in a way of kind of comparison, contrast, that kind of a thing. This is the way that he fulfills it, and we've talked about this before, the way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament is not just he's going to do this and then he does that. There's some of that. But an awful lot of how he fulfills it is that the whole of the Old Testament, every story within it, is kind of this musical refrain of da-da-da-da-da. And then it just hangs like that. And every story you read kind of has this, it's, it's a musical refrain. It's a... We hear that. And we even start to get familiar with that pattern, but it always seems incomplete until Jesus shows up. And then we go, okay. (laughs) So you have that Jesus, and that completes, that fulfills what it was all uh, doing. And so when we look at this, we're going to see some things that point us in a direction towards Jesus, but not in like straightforward prophecy and not just like as an allegory either. But it's as a familiar story. So think about it like this. Do you hear when Pharaoh gives commands that they are obeyed? Twice, he says, do this. Tell your brothers, do this. And the verse 21, so the sons of Israel did this. He commands, and it happens. we ever see that anywhere else in the Bible? Genesis 1, we see that God said, and it happens. And God says, and it happens. This is what, uh, what it looks like to have this kind of authority. And so we're seeing here Pharaoh having this godlike authority over Egypt. How he is able to command, and it happens. We see this other places as well, including places uh, like Mark 4. I should have marked all these places, and I didn't. We're getting ready to run through some stuff. In Mark 4, it says Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, in a boat, The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? You still have no faith. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. He gives a command, and it happens. 
And just like Pharaoh could give a command in Egypt and it was obeyed because he has that authority, then we see Jesus having this kind of authority, but not just over um, the, the people around him or that kind of thing, but over all creation itself. We see more as this points us forward. If we think about this, never mind about your belongings, because the best of all Egypt will be yours. This is what Pharaoh tells them. Don't worry about your stuff. (laughs) I'm going to provide for you. Does that sound familiar? Does that point us forward to anybody? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we just read in our uh, call to worship this morning from Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing. And that is very much what this psalm is about, is how God is taking care of us. And Jesus says similar things. In Matthew 6, Matthew 6, Jesus talks about not worrying. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds, the air. Look at the uh, flowers in the field. This is how God is taking care of his creation. Is he not going to much more take care of you? And so he says, uh, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Never mind about your belongings. Because the best, not of all Egypt, will be yours. Because the very gifts of heaven will be yours. That the king of all kings has promised to take care of you. And when we think about how much time and energy we spend on our stuff, when it comes to Buying stuff, selling stuff, maintaining stuff, 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 stuff. It's incredible, isn't it? Especially when Jesus keeps saying, yeah, you really don't need to worry about that stuff. God knows you need it. It's not that it's unimportant. But it does place in a different uh, priority than where we typically put it. This is what Jesus teaches his disciples by sending them out to minister and says, don't take stuff with you. I want to teach you to trust that God is going to take care of you. This is um, uh, same kind of thing we see Romans 8. Where Paul writes in verse 31 and 2, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This has been the constant teaching throughout. This is what we see Jesus uh, demonstrating 
when uh, what we read in our gospel reading this morning, providing food in the wilderness. The disciples are looking around, even after they've gone out and seen how God has provided for them. They get into the wilderness. He's like, well, sure, you provided for us, but now there's all these other people here. There's no way. Sure there is. And he has them sit down in the green grass. I even think makes them lie down in green grass, in green pastures. It's this echo again of God providing for his people. So never mind about your belongings. The best of all Egypt will be yours, as Pharaoh says. And then, of course, gives them, uh, Joseph then gives them provisions. So if we think of this kind of in terms of Pharaoh having this authority that represents the authority that God has, we think of Joseph kind of in this um, role like Jesus in the way that he also has authority and also is providing. And we look at the ways that Jesus makes provision and we see the you know feeding of the 5,000. We see in John 14 how Jesus um, promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of this, we don't have what we need. That is correct, but I will give you what you need. We see this in Acts chapter 1, the, where they are not supposed to even go out and start spreading the message of Jesus yet, even after he's raised from the dead, until he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, to the church. Because that is the provision they will need. And then when it says to each of them, this is verse 22, to each of them he gave new clothing, that point us forward to anything? <laughs> That's one of those weird things that shows up all over the New Testament. But in Colossians 3, it talks about what we should take off, but also what we should put on as though it's like new clothes. Uh, this kind of new identity, this new um, family identity, but this is what we will, um, what we wear instead of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, um, Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying, etc. He says, you don't do this because you've taken off your old self with its practices. and You're being renewed. And so then instead it says, uh, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is um, what we see as the same kind of thing as the, um, the gifts of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, where it says the acts of the flesh and describes what those are. Says, That's obvious. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what he gives to us. This is that uh, new character, this new identity, this new, um, but it's also like new clothing that he is providing for his people. What about this don't quarrel on the way? Does that point forward? Because here's the deal. If Pharaoh is kind of representing God for us here, if um, 
Joseph is kind of representing Jesus, we find ourselves as the brothers, don't we? That we are the ones who are being provided for, who are having these promises made to us, who are supposed to obey the one in authority over us. And then we are given this kind of a command, don't quarrel on the way. (laughs) Romans um, 14 actually begins by saying, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And it goes into a whole uh, discussion over that kind of thing. Not going to quarrel about this kind of stuff. First uh, Corinthians 3. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? And so we see this sign of quarreling. The same thing with the brothers. If the brothers go away, this is why Joseph's saying no quarreling on the way. If the brothers go away from this reconciliation with Joseph, and they're still quarreling among themselves, they haven't understood the reconciliation that just happened. Right? They're still hanging on to how they wronged him all those years ago. And Joseph's saying, no, that's done. That's over. That's been dealt with. It's done. So now, be one with each other. Be reconciled to each other in the same way that I have been reconciled to you. Same thing that Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. If you all are still uh, fighting with each other about stuff, playing the blame game, etc., you you still haven't understood the forgiveness we have and the reconciliation we have with God in Christ. That we are not only to be reconciled to him, but also to each other. No quarreling on the way. Um, this actually shows up all over the New Testament. Uh, let me see if I have one more. Uh, flee the evil. This is Second Timothy chapter 2. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. There's more. It's all good. Um, We're so out of time, and I still have more. There's one more thing. This is very important. If Pharaoh is pointing us to the authority of God uh, over all of creation as the true king of kings, if Joseph is pointing us to Jesus as one who is also in authority, um, if and is providing for us. If we are, if the brothers are pointing to us as those who are receiving and who are dependent on uh, the gracious gifts that are being given, who is who's Jacob pointing us toward? I think that's just the world. Because think about this. What is the message that the brothers are supposed to give to Jacob? Joseph is alive. And he's actually the ruler of all Egypt. 
Now think about this. What is our message supposed to be to the world? Jesus is alive, and he's actually the king of the whole universe. That's the message, right? And initially, how do people tend to respond? Just like Jacob does. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And in fact, we even see this. uh, If you look at Luke 24, which I referenced a bit earlier uh, on the road to Emmaus, but even before you get there, uh, it is... The disciples themselves respond not with joy and amazement and belief, but listen to this. It says, when they came back from the tomb, they, were told, all the, they told all these things to the eleven and to the, all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. This is good news. To me, I I think this is great news (laughs) that the disciples themselves first response wasn't belief. And one of the reasons why, and there are several reasons, but one of the reasons why I think this is such good news is because that's clearly not the end of their story. That things happen later on. They see enough evidence that they do believe later on. And this is the same thing that happens with Jacob when he's told that Joseph is alive and is king over Egypt. And he's like, I don't believe it. But then he sees evidence. And after seeing the evidence says, okay, now I believe. Same thing happens with the disciples that they uh, don't believe initially. Then they do see enough evidence and then they do believe. This to me is good for lots of reasons. But what I was going to say is this gives us hope that when we're spreading this good news. We're telling people Jesus is alive and he's the king of the whole universe and we're met with disbelief. We don't have to write these people off and be like, oh, well, terrible people not believing. The disciples themselves didn't believe. (laughs) And so this is a time for patience and a time for continued uh, graciousness and compassion and uh, continuing to tell the good news. And maybe at some point in their life, they will see enough evidence and they will believe. Maybe they won't. But that part isn't for us to control. All we do is share the good news. This is what we were sent out to do. Same thing that these uh, brothers were sent out to do. Go tell your father. It's alive. That's what they do. They go and they tell him. And the good news as it ends is he is convinced. I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And this is also what our prayer ought to be for everyone who is not yet convinced. That they would see what they need to see. That we would not be showing them the things like the quarreling and the, um, the stuff of our sinful nature that points people away from the reality of the lordship of Jesus. But instead, we would be showing evidence of how even in our own sinful brokenness, Jesus has shined his light through us. 
ways in which he has um, worked in our own lives. That they would see evidence that he really is alive. That he really is the king over the whole universe. And that they too would long to see him before they die. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.